This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan Mysticism A Study in the Nature and Development of Spiritual Consciousness by Evelyn Underhill Second Half of Part 1, Chapter 5 First, the Father, pure transcendent being, creative source and origin of all that is, the unconditioned and unknowable one of the Neoplatonists, who is neither this nor that, and must be conceived, pace Monsieur Delacroix, as utterly transcendent to the subject rather than set up within the soul. Secondly, in the person of Christ, St. Teresa isolated and distinguished the logos or creative word, the expression or outbirth of the Father's thought. Here is the point at which the divine substance first becomes apprehensible by the spirit of man, that mediating principle raised up between heaven and earth, which is at once the mirror of pure being and the light of a finite world. The second person of the Christian Trinity is for the believer not only the brightness or express image of deity, but also the personal, inexhaustible and responsive fount of all life and object of all love, who, because of his taking up in the incarnation of humanity into the Godhead, has become the bridge between finite and infinite, between the individual and the absolute life, and hence in mystic language the true bridegroom of every human soul. Thirdly, she recognized within herself the germ of that absolute life, the indwelling spirit which is the source of man's transcendental consciousness and his link with the being of God. That is to say, the Holy Spirit of divine love, the real desirous seeking for the real desired, without whose presence any knowledge of or communion with God on man's part would be inconceivable. In the supreme vision of the Trinity which was vouchsafed to St. Teresa in the seventh habitation of the soul, these three aspects became fused in one. In the deepest recesses of her spirit, in that abyss where selfhood ceases to have meaning, and the individual soul touches the life of the all, distinction vanished, and she saw God in a point. Such an experience, such an intuition of simple and undifferentiated Godhead, the unity, beyond those three centres of divine consciousness which we call the trinity of persons, is highly characteristic of mysticism. The German mystics, temperamentally miles asunder from St. Teresa, described it as the attainment of the still wilderness or lonely desert of deity, the limitless divine abyss, impersonal, indescribable, forever hid in the cloud of unknowing, and yet the true country of the soul. These statements, which appear when thus laid down to be hopelessly academic, violently divorced from life, were not for St. Teresa or any other Christian mystic abstract propositions, but attempts towards the description of first-hand experience. By some mysterious manifestation of the truth, she says, the three persons of the most blessed trinity reveal themselves, preceded by an illumination which shines on the spirit like a most dazzling cloud of light. The three persons are distinct from one another. A sublime knowledge is infused into the soul, 
imbuing it with a certainty of the truth that the three are of one substance, power, and knowledge, and are one God. Thus that which we hold as a doctrine of faith, the soul now, so to speak, understands by sight, though it beholds the blessed trinity neither by the eyes of the body nor of the soul, this being no imaginary vision. All the three persons here communicate themselves to the soul, speak to it, and make it understand the words of our Lord in the Gospel, that he and the Father and the Holy Ghost will come and make their abode with the soul which loves him and keeps his commandments. O oh my God, how different from merely hearing and believing these words is it to realize their truth in this way. Day by day a growing astonishment takes possession of this soul, for the three persons of the Blessed Trinity seem never to depart, that they dwell far within its own centre and depths, though for want of learning it cannot describe how. It is conscious of the indwelling of these divine companions. Mystical writers constantly remind us that life as perceived by the human minds shows an inveterate tendency to arrange itself in triads, that if they proclaim the number three in the heavens, they can also point to it as dominating everywhere upon the earth. Here Christianity did but give form to a deep instinct of the human mind, an instinct which made Pythagoras call three the number of God, because beginning, middle, and end were contained therein. Thus to Hindu thought, the absolute Godhead is unknowable, but he disclosed three faces to man, Brahma the creator, Shiva the destroyer, Krishna the repairer, and these three were one. So too the Neoplatonists distinguished three worlds, the sensible or phenomenal, the rational or intellectual, the intelligible or spiritual, and three aspects of God, the unconditioned absolute, the logos or artificer, and the divine essence or soul of the world, which is both absolute and created. Perhaps we have in such triads a first sketch of the Christian trinity, though falling far short of the requirements of man's spiritual experience. The dry bones await the breath of more abundant life. Corresponding with this diagram of God's nature, the Platonists see also three grades of beauty, the corporeal, the spiritual, and the divine. Man, that thing of threes, of body, soul, and spirit, of understanding, memory, and will, follows in his path towards unity the threefold way, for our soul, says Lady Julian, is made trinity-like to the unmade blissful trinity, known and loved from without beginning, and in the making one to the maker. We still tend to analyse our psychic life into emotional, volitional, and intellectual elements. Even the subject and object implied in every experience required a third term, the relation between them, without which no thought can be complete. Thus the very principle of analogy imposes upon man a trinitarian definition of reality as the one with which his mind is best able to cope. It is easy for the hurried rationalist to demonstrate the absurdity of this fact, but he will find it a very different matter when it comes to disproving it. I could wish, says St. Augustine, that men would consider these three things that are in themselves, to be, to know, and to will. For I am, and I know, and I will, I am knowing and willing, and I know myself to be and to will, and I will to be and to know. 
In these three, therefore, let him who can see how inseparable a life there is, even one life, one mind, one essence. Finally, how inseparable is the distinction, and yet a distinction. Surely a man hath it before him. Let him look into himself and see and tell me. But when he discovers and can see anything of these, let him not think that he has discovered that which is above these unchangeable, which is unchangeably, and knows unchangeably, and wills unchangeably. In a well-known passage, Julian of Norwich tells us how she saw the trinity of the divine nature shining in the phenomenal as well as in the spiritual world. He showed me, she says, a little thing, the quantity of an hazelnut in the palm of my hand, and it was as round as a ball. I looked thereupon with the eye of my understanding and thought, What may this be? And it was answered generally thus, It is all that is made. In this little thing I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loveth it. The third is that God keepeth it. But what is to me verily the maker, the keeper and the lover, I cannot tell. Julian, a simple and deeply human Englishwoman of middle age, dwelling alone in her churchyard cell, might well be called the poet of the Trinity. She treats this austere and subtle dogma, of which the medieval mystics write with a passion little understood by those who look upon it as orthodoxy reduced to mathematics. With an intimacy and vigour which carry with them a conviction of her own direct and personal apprehension of the theological truth she struggles to describe. I beheld, she says, of a vision which is close to that of St. Teresa in the seventh habitation of the soul, and more lucidly, if less splendidly expressed, the working of all the blessed trinity, in which beholding I saw and understood these three properties, the property of the fatherhood, the property of the motherhood, and the property of the lordhood, in one God. In our Father Almighty we have our keeping and our bliss as anent our natural substance, which is to us by our making without beginning. And in the second person in wit and wisdom we have our keeping as anent our sent soul, our restoring and our saving, for he is our mother, brother and saviour. And in our good Lord, the Holy Ghost, we have our rewarding and our meed-giving for our living and our travail, and endless overpassing of all that we desire, in his marvellous courtesy of his high, plenteous grace. For all our life is in three. In the first we have our being, in the second we have our increasing, and in the third we have our fulfilling. The first is nature, the second is mercy, and the third is grace. The high might of the Trinity is our Father, and the deep wisdom of the Trinity is our Mother, and the great love of the Trinity is our Lord, and all this we have in nature and in our substantial making. Again in a passage of exquisite tenderness, As verily as God is our Father, so verily God is our Mother, and that showed he in all her revelations, and especially in these sweet words, where he saith, I it am. That is to say, I it am, the might and the goodness of the fatherhood. I it am, the wisdom of the motherhood. I it am, the light and the grace that is all blessed love. 
I, it, am the trinity. I, it, am the unity. I am the sovereign goodness of all manner of things. I am that maketh thee to love. I am that maketh thee to long. I, it, am the endless fulfilling of all true desires. So Christopher Hervey, the whole world round is not enough to fill the heart's three corners, but it craveth still. Only the trinity that made it can suffice the vast triangled heart of man. Any attempt towards a definition of God which does not account for and acknowledge these three aspects is found in experience to be incomplete. They provide objectives for the heart, the intellect, and the will, for they offer to the self material for its highest love, its deepest thought, its act of supreme volition. Under the familiar platonic terms of goodness, truth, and beauty, they represent the divine source and end of ethics, science, and art, the three supreme activities of man. Thus the ideals of artist, student, and philanthropist, who all seek under different modes the same reality, are gathered up in the mystics one, as the pilgrimage of the three kings ended in the finding of one star. What is God, says St. Bernard? Length, breadth, height, and depth. What, you say, you do after all profess to believe in the fourfold Godhead, which was an abomination to you? Not in the least. God is designated one to suit our comprehension, not to describe his character. His character is capable of division, he himself is not. The words are different, the paths are many, but one thing is signified, the paths lead to one person. All possible ways of conceiving this one person in his living richness are found in the end to range themselves under three heads. He is above all and through all and in you all, said St. Paul, anticipating the councils in a flash of mystic intuition and giving to the infant church the shortest and most perfect definition of its triune God. Being, which is above all, manifests itself as becoming, as the dynamic omnipresent word of life. The divine love imminent in the heart and in the world comes forth from, and returns to, the Absolute One. Thou my God who art love, says Nicholas of Cusa, art love that loveth, and love that is lovable, and love that is the bond between these twain. Thus is completed the eternal circle from goodness, through goodness, to goodness. It is true that to these fundamental respects of the perceived Godhead, that being, becoming, and desire whereto the worlds keep time, the mystics have given many and various names, for they have something of the freedom of true intimates in treating of the reality which they love. In particular, those symbols of the Absolute which are drawn from the great and formless forces of the universe, rather than from the orthodox but necessarily anthropomorphic imagery of human relationship, have always appealed to them. Their intense apprehension of spirit seems to find freer and more adequate expression in such terms than in those in which the notion of space is involved, or which suggest a concrete picture to the mind. Though they know as well as the philosophers that there must always be something symbolic in our way of expressing the spiritual life, since that unfathomable, infinite, 
whose spiritual character is first recognized in our human experience, can never reveal itself fully and freely under the limitations of our earthly existence. Yet they ever seek, like the artists they are, some new and vital image which is not yet part of the debased currency of formal religion and conserves its original power of stinging the imagination to more vivid life. Thus the kingdom of heaven, says law, stands in this threefold life, where three are one, because it is a manifestation of the deity, which is three and one. The Father has his distinct manifestation in the fire, which is always generating the light. The Son has his distinct manifestation in the light, which is always generated from the fire. The Holy Ghost has his manifestation in the Spirit, that always proceeds from both, and is always united with them. It is this eternal unbeginning trinity in unity of fire, light, and spirit that constitutes eternal nature, the kingdom of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, the divine life, the beatific visibility, the majestic glory and presence of God. Through this kingdom of heaven, or eternal nature, is the invisible God, the incomprehensible trinity, eternally breaking forth and manifesting itself in a boundless height and depth of blissful wonders, opening and displaying itself to all its creatures as in an infinite variation and endless multiplicity of its powers, beauties, joys, and glories. Perhaps an easier, better, more beautiful example of these abstract symbols of the Trinity than laws, fire, light, and spirit is that of light, life, and love, a threefold picture of the real, which is constantly dwelt upon and elaborated by the Christian mystics. Transcendent light, intangible but unescapable, ever emanating its splendor through the universe, indwelling, unresting, and energizing life, desirous and directive love. These are cardinal aspects of reality to which they return again and again in their efforts to find words which will express something of the inexpressible truth. A. Light, ineffable and uncreated, the perfect symbol of pure, undifferentiated being, above the intellect, as St. Augustine reminds us, but known to him who loves. This uncreated light is the deep yet dazzling darkness of the Dionysian school, dark from its surpassing brightness, as the shining of the sun on his course is as darkness to weak eyes. It is St. Hildegard's Lux Vivens, Dante's Sommelute, wherein he saw multiplicity in unity, the ingathered leaves of all the universe, the eternal father or fount of things. For well we know, says Rusbroek, that the bosom of the father is our ground and origin, wherein our life and being is begun. B. Life, the sun, hidden steersman of the universe, the logos, fire or cosmic soul of things, this outbirth or concept of the father's mind which he possesses within himself, as Battista Vernaza was told in her ecstasy, is that word of creation which since it is alive and infinite, no formula can contain, the word eternally spoken or generated by the transcendent light. This is why, says Rusbroek again, all that lives in the father unmanifested in the unity, is also in the sun actively poured forth in manifestation. 
This life, then, is the flawless expression or character of the father, sapientia patris. It is at once the personal and adorable comrade of the mystic's adventure and the inmost principle, the sustaining power of a dynamic universe. For that which intellect defines as the logos or creative spirit, contemplative love knows as wonderful, counsellor, and prince of peace. Since Christ, for the Christian philosopher, is divine life itself, the drama of Christianity expressing this fact and its implications in a point, it follows that his active spirit is to be discerned, not symbolically, but in the most veritable sense, in the ecstatic and abounding life of the world, in the rapturous vitality of the birds, in their splendid glancing flight, in the swelling of buds and the sacrificial beauty of the flowers, in the great and solemn rhythms of the sea. There is somewhat of Bethlehem in all these things, somewhat too of Calvary in their self-giving pains. It was this rediscovery of nature's Christliness which Blake desired so passionately when he sang, I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Here then it is, on this pinnacle of faith, at the utmost boundaries of human speech, that mystical theology suddenly shows herself, not as the puzzle-headed constructor of impossible creeds, but as accepting and transmuting to a more radiant life those two profound but apparently contradictory metaphysical definitions of reality which we have already discussed. Eternal becoming, God imminent and dynamic, striving with and in his world, the unresting flux of things of Heraclitus, the crying aloud of that word which is through all things everlastingly, the evolutionary world process beloved of modern philosophers, is here placed once for all in true relation with pure, transcendent and unmoving being the absolute one of Xenophanes and the Platonists. This absolute is discerned by mystic intuition as the end of unity in whom all diversities must cease. The ocean to which that ceaseless and painful becoming, that unresting river of life in which we are immersed, tends to return. The son going to the father. C. Love the principle of attraction, which seems to partake at once of the transcendental and the created worlds. If we consider the Father as supreme subject, origin, as Aquinas says, of the entire procession of deity, and the Son, or generated Logos, as the object of his thought, in whom, says Rusburic, he contemplates himself and all things in an eternal now, then this personal spirit of love, il desiro e il vele, represents the relation between the two, and constitutes the very character of God. The Heavenly Father, says Rusburic, as a living ground, with all that lives in him, is actively turned towards his Son as to his own eternal wisdom. And that same wisdom, with all that lives in it, is actively turned back towards the Father, that is, towards that very ground from which it comes forth. And of this meeting is born the third person, between the Father and the Son, that is, the Holy Spirit, their mutual love. Proceeding, according to Christian doctrine, from light and life, the Father and Son, implicit, that is, in both the absolute source and dynamic flux of things, this divine spirit of desire is found enshrined in our very selfhood and is the agent by which that selfhood is merged in the absolute self. 
"'My love is my weight,' said St. Augustine. "'It is the spiritual equivalent of that gravitation "'which draws all things to their place.' Thus Bernard Holland says in his introduction to Boehm's dialogues, in a deep sense, the desire of the spark of life in the soul to return to its original source is part of the longing desire of the universal life for its own heart or centre. Of this longing, the universal attraction striving against resistance towards a universal centre proved to govern the phenomenal or physical world is but the outer sheath and visible working. Again, desire is everything in nature, does everything. Heaven is nature filled with divine life, attracted by desire. The best masters say, says Eckhart, that the love wherewith we love is the Holy Spirit. Some deny it, but this is always true. All these motives by which we are moved to love, in these is nothing else than the Holy Spirit. God wills, says Rusbroek, gathering these scattered symbols to unity again, that we should come forth from ourselves in this eternal light, that we should reunite ourselves in a supernatural manner with that image which is our true life, and that we should possess it with him actively and fruitively in eternal blessedness. This going forth of the contemplative is also in love, for by fruit of love he overpasses his created being and finds and tastes the riches and delights which are God himself, and which he causes to pour forth without ceasing in the most secret chamber of the soul, at that place where it is most like unto the nobility of God. Here only, in the innermost sanctuary of being, the soul's last habitation, as St. Teresa said, is the truth which these symbols express truly known. For as to how the Trinity is one, and the Trinity in the unity of the nature is one, whilst nevertheless the Trinity comes forth from the unity. This cannot be expressed in words, says Suso, owing to the simplicity of that deep abyss. Hither it is, into this intelligible where that the spirit, spiritualizing itself, soars up, now flying in the measureless heights, now swimming in the soundless deeps of the sublime marvels of the Godhead. Mystical philosophy, then, has availed itself gladly of the doctrine of the Trinity in expressing its vision of the nature of that absolute which is found, by those who attain the deep abyss of the Godhead, to be essentially one. But it is by the complementary Christian dogma of the Incarnation that it has best been able to describe and explain the nature of the inward and personal mystic experience. The Incarnation, which is for traditional Christianity synonymous with the historical birth and earthly life of Christ, is for mystics of a certain type, not only this, but also a perpetual cosmic and personal process. It is an everlasting bringing forth, in the universe and also in the individual ascending soul, of the divine and perfect life, the pure character of God, of which the one historical life dramatized the essential constituents. Hence the soul, like the physical embryo, resumes in its upward progress the spiritual life-history of the race. The one secret, the greatest of all, says Patmore, is the doctrine of the Incarnation, regarded not as an historical event which occurred two thousand years ago, but as an event which is renewed in the body of every one who is in the way to the fulfilment of his original destiny. We have seen that for mystical theology, 
The second person of the Trinity is the wisdom of the Father, the word of life. The fullness of this word could therefore only be communicated to the human consciousness by a life. In the incarnation, this logos, this divine character of reality, penetrated the illusions of the sensual world. In other words, the illusions of all the selves whose ideas composed that world, and saved it by this infusion of truth. A divine, suffering, self-sacrificing personality was then shown as the sacred heart of a living, striving universe, and for once the absolute was exhibited in the terms of finite human existence. Some such event as this breaking through the divine and archetypal life into the temporal world is perceived by the mystical philosopher to be a necessity. If man was ever to see in terms of life that greatness of life to which he belongs, learn to transcend the world of sense and rebuild his life upon the levels of reality. For thou art, says Nicholas of Cusa, the word of God humanified, and thou art man deified. Thus it is that the Catholic priest in the Christmas Mass gives thanks not for the setting in hand of any commercial process of redemption, but for a revelation of reality. Quia per incarnati verbi mysterium nova mentis notrae oculis luxtuae claritatis infusit, ut dum visibilite deum cognoscimus puhunc invisibilium amorum rapiamur. Note. Because by the mystery of the incarnate word, the new light of thy brightness hath shone upon the eyes of our mind, that we, knowing God seen of the eyes, by him may be snatched up into the love of that which eye hath not seen. End note. The essence of mystical Christianity seems to be summed up in these lovely words. The Son of God, the eternal word in the Father, who is the glance or brightness and the power of the light eternity, says Boehm, must become man and be born in you, if you will know God. Otherwise, you are in the dark stable and go about groping. The word, says Rusborek finally, is no other than see, and this is the coming forth and the birth of the Son of the eternal light, in whom all blessedness is seen and known. Once at any rate, they say in effect, the measure of that which it was possible for the spirit of life to do and for living creatures to be was filled to the brim. By this event, all were assured that the ladder of creation was made whole. In this hypostatic union, the breach between appearance and reality, between God and man, was healed. The breach so made, to use St. Catherine of Siena's allegory again, is eternal since it was laid before the foundation of the world in the eternal now. Thus the voice of the Father says to her in that vision, I also wish thee to look at the bridge of my only begotten Son, and see the greatness thereof, for it reaches from heaven to earth. That is, that the earth of your humanity is joined to the greatness of the deity thereby. I say then, that this bridge reaches from heaven to earth, and constitutes the union which I have made with man. So the height of the divinity, humbled to the earth, and joined with your humanity, made the bridge and reformed the road. Why was this done? In order that man might come to his true happiness with the angels, and observe that it is not enough, in order that you should have life, that my son should have made you this bridge, 
unless you walk thereon. Our High Father, God Almighty, which is being, says Lady Julian, he knew and loved us from afore any time, of which knowing, in his marvellous deep charity, and the foreseeing counsel of all the blessed Trinity, he willed that the second person should become our mother. It is, of course, this assertion of the quickening communication of grace to nature, of God to man, an influx of ultimate reality, possible of assimilation by all, which constitutes the strength of the Christian religion. Instead of the stony diet of the philosophers, it offers to the self-hungry for the absolute that panis angelorum, the vivifying principle of the world. That is to say, it gives concrete and experimental knowledge of a supreme personality, absorption into his mystical body, instead of the artificial conviction produced by concentration on an idea. It knits up the universe, shows the phenomenal pierced in all directions by the real, the natural, as the vehicle of the supernatural. It provides a solid basis for mysticism, a basis which is at once metaphysical and psychological, and shows that state towards which the world's deepest minds have always instinctively aspired, as a part of the cosmic return through Christ to God. Quivi e la sapienza e la possanza, capi la strada intra il cielo e la terra, onde fugia si lunga disianza. Note. Here is the wisdom and the power which opened the ways betwixt heaven and earth, for which there erst had been so long a yearning. End note. This is what the Christian mystics mean to express when they declare over and over again that the return to the divine substance, the absolute, which is the end of the soul's ascent, can only be made through the humanity of Christ. The Son, the Word, is the character of the Father, that in which the ineffable Godhead knows himself, as we only know ourselves in our own characters. He is thus a double link, the means of God's self-consciousness, the means of man's consciousness of God. How, then, asked mystic theology, could such a link complete its attachment without some such process as that which the Incarnation dramatized in time and space? The principle of life is also the principle of restitution, by which the imperfect and broken life of sense is mended and transformed into the perfect life of spirit. Hence the title of repairer applied by Boehm to the second person of the Trinity. In the last resort, the doctrine of the Incarnation is the only safeguard of the mystics against the pantheism to which they always tend. The unconditioned absolute, so soon as it alone becomes the object of their contemplation, is apt to be conceived merely as divine essence. The idea of personality evaporates. The union of the soul with God is then thought of in terms of absorption. The distinction between creator and creature is obliterated, and loving communion is at an end. This is probably the reason why many of the greatest contemplatives, Suso and St. Teresa are cases in point, have found that deliberate meditation upon the humanity of Christ, difficult and uncongenial as this concrete devotion sometimes is to the mystical temperament, was a necessity if they were to retain a healthy and well-balanced inner life.
Further, these mystics see in the historic life of Christ an epitome, or if you will, an exhibition of the essentials of all spiritual life. There they see dramatized not only the cosmic process of the divine wisdom, but also the inward experience of every soul on her way to union with that absolute to which the whole creation moves. This is why the expressions which they use to describe the evolution of the mystical consciousness from the birth of the divine in the spark of the soul to its final unification with the absolute life are so constantly chosen from the drama of faith. In this drama, they see described under veils the necessary adventures of the spirit, its obscure and humble birth, its education in poverty, its temptation, mortification and solitude, its illuminated life of service and contemplation, the desolation of that dark night of the soul in which it seems abandoned by the divine, the painful death of the self, its resurrection to the glorified existence of the unitive way, its final reabsorption in its source. All these, they say, were lived once in a supreme degree in the flesh. Moreover, the degree of closeness with which the individual experience adheres to this pattern is always taken by them as a standard of the healthiness, ardour and success of its transcendental activities. Apave in questa forma padare a noi la norma, San Giacopone da Todi, and he who vainly thinketh otherwise, says the theologia Germanica, with uncompromising vigour, is deceived, and he who saith otherwise, lieth. Those to whom such a parallel seems artificial should remember that according to the doctrine of mysticism, that drama of the self-limitation and self-sacrifice of the absolute life, which was once played out in the phenomenal world, forced, as it were, upon the consciousness of dim-eyed men, is eternally going forward upon the plane of reality. To them the cross of Calvary is implicit in the rose of the world. The law of this infinite life, which was in the incarnation expressing its own nature in human terms, must then also be the law of the finite life, in so far as that life aspires to transcend individual limitations, rise to freedom, and attain union with infinity. It is this governing idea which justifies the apparently fanciful allegorizations of Christian history, which swarm in the works of the mystics. To exhibit these allegorizations in detail would be tedious. All that is necessary is that the principle underlying them should be understood. I give them but one example, that which is referred by mystical writers to the nativity, and concerns the eternal birth or generation of the Son, or divine word. This birth is in its first, or cosmic sense, the welling forth of the spirit of life from the divine abyss of the unconditioned Godhead. From our proper ground, that is to say, from the Father and all that which lives in him, there shines, says Rusbroek, an eternal ray, the which is the birth of the sun. It is of this perpetual generation of the word that Meister Eckhart speaks when he says in his Christmas sermon, We are celebrating the feast of the eternal birth which God the Father has borne and never ceases to bear in all eternity. What this birth also comes to pass in time and in human nature. St. Augustine says this birth is ever taking place. At this point, 
with that strong practical instinct which is characteristic of the mystics. Eckhart turns abruptly from speculation to immediate experience, and continues. But if it takes not place in me, what avails it? Everything lies in this, that it should take place in me. Here in a few words, the twofold character of this mystic birth is exhibited. The interest is suddenly deflected from its cosmic to its personal aspect, and the individual is reminded that in him, no less than in the archetypal universe, real life must be born if real life is to be lived. When the soul brings forth the sun, says Eckhart in another place, it is happier than Mary. Since the soul, according to mystic principles, can only perceive reality in proportion as she is real, know God by becoming godlike. It is clear that this birth is the initial necessity. The true and definitely directed mystical life does and must open with that most actual, though indescribable phenomenon, the coming forth into consciousness of man's deeper spiritual self, which ascetical and mystical writers of all ages have agreed to call regeneration or rebirth. Nothing that is within him is able of its own power to achieve this. It must be evoked by an energy, a quickening spirit, which comes from beyond the soul and secretly initiates what he openly crowns. We have already considered the new birth in its purely psychological aspect, as the emergence of the transcendental sense. Here its more profound and mystical side is exhibited, by a process which may indifferently be described as the birth of something new, or the coming forth of something which has slept, since both these phrases are but metaphors for another and more secret operation. The eye is opened on eternity. The self, abruptly made aware of reality, comes forth from the cave of illusion like a child from the womb, and begins to live upon the supersensual plane. Then she feels in her inmost part a new presence, a new consciousness, it were hardly an exaggeration to say a new person. Weak, demanding nurture, clearly destined to pass through many phases of development before its maturity is reached. Yet of so strange a nature, that in comparison with its environment, she may well regard it as divine. This change, this upsetting, is called rebirth. To be born simply means to enter into a world in which the senses dominate, in which wisdom and love languish in the bonds of individuality. To be reborn means to return to a world where the spirit of wisdom and love governs and animal man obeys. So Eckhart Salson, it means, says Jane Lead, the bringing forth of a new created godlike similitude in the soul. He is brought forth, says Eckhart Salson again, in the stable previously inhabited by the ox of passion and the ass of prejudice. His mother, says Bohem, is the Virgin Sophia, the divine wisdom or mirror of the being of God. With the emergence of this new factor into the conscious field, this spiritual birth, the mystic life begins. As the Christian epoch began with the emergence of divine spirit in the flesh, Paradise, says Bohem, is still in the world, but man is not in paradise, unless he be born again. In that case, he stands therein in the new birth, and tastes here and now 
that eternal life for which he has been made. Here, then, are some characteristics of the map which the Christian mystics are most inclined to use. There are, of course, other great landmarks upon it, and these we shall meet as we follow in detail the voyages of the questing soul. One warning, however, must be given to amateur geographers before we go on. Like all other maps, this one, at its best, can but represent by harsh outline and conventional colour the living earth which those travellers trod and the mysterious seas on which they sailed. It is a deliberately schematic representation of reality, a flat and sometimes arid symbol of great landscapes, rushing rivers, awful peaks. Dangerous unless these its limitations be always kept in mind. The boy who defined Canada as very pink was not much further off the track than those who would limit the adorable trinity to the definitions of the Athanasian creed. However useful that chart may be and is within the boundaries imposed by its form. Further, all such maps, and we who treat of them, can but set down in cold blood and with a dreadful pretense of precision matters which the true explorers of eternity were only able to apprehend in the ardours of such a passion, in the transports of such a union as we, poor finite slaves of our frittered emotions, could hardly look upon and live. If you would truly know how these things come to pass, says St. Bonafontura, in a passage which all students of theology should ever keep in mind. Ask it of grace, not of doctrine, of desire, not of intellect, of the ardours of prayer, not of the teachings of the schools, of the bridegroom, not of the master, of God, not of man, of the darkness, not of the day, not of illumination, but of that fire which inflames all and wraps us in God with great sweetness and most ardent love. The which fire most truly is God, and the heart thereof is in Jerusalem. End of Part 1, Chapter 5